It's good to see your faces once again this morning and not be staring into uh, a black hole in a camera. So I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to regather today. And as we regather today, as Brian mentioned um, just a moment ago, it has been a difficult week across our nation. Um, and as we regather today, we regather with heavy hearts as we look out upon the landscape of what's taking place in cities across America. And I just want to say a brief word about that this morning and then lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, so last week, if, if you do not know, uh, there was a man who lost his life in police custody in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and that sparked um, protest, some very peaceful, um, people raising their voices, uh, but there's also sparked very violent protests as well. Um, and the protest and people raising their voices, I think, is an appropriate response to what has taken place. But the violence, the looting, um, it never has a place in response uh, to what has taken place. Um, as believers, we're called to think biblically about everything, okay? Not just our own personal, private morality, but about everything, every aspect of life. And so as we think about what has taken place, one of the things the Scriptures call us to do as believers in Romans chapter 12, it calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Other translations may say mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve. And is it an appropriate thing for us to grieve with the family of George Floyd? It's appropriate for us to weep with them, for us to mourn with them. Even if you cannot identify with their experience. See, a part of growing as a Christian is being able to, as well, identify with the experiences of others, even if they're not your own experience, and to be able to enter into their sorrow with sympathy, with compassion, with empathy, and be able to weep with those who weep. So this morning, as we think about this, I came across a statement last night that was written by the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and we as a Southern Baptist Church, I thought it would be helpful for us to hear from them. This has been affirmed and approved by those at the, every level of leadership within the SBC, those at the national level, those at the state level, and many at the local level as well. And I thought they did a phenomenal job of capturing biblically a response to what has taken place. Uh, much better, they wrote it much better than I could have. And so I want to read it to you this morning as we move into a time of prayer as we weep and mourn with those who weep and mourn. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, and the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, James Dew, co-authored this statement together. And at the beginning, they say these, this, as a convention of churches committed to the equality and dignity of all people, Southern Baptists grieve the death of George Floyd, who was killed May 25, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While all must grieve... We understand that in the hearts of our fellow citizens of color, incidents like these connect to a long history of unequal justice in our country, going back to the grievous Jim Crow and slavery eras. The images and information we have available to us in this case are horrific and remind us that there is much work to be done to ensure that there is not even a hint of racial inequality in the distribution of justice in our nation. We grieve to see examples of the misuse of force and call for those issues to be addressed with speed and justice. While we thank God for law enforcement officers that bravely risk their lives for the sake of others and uphold justice with dignity and integrity. I want to pause from the statement there for a moment and just say I know some of these officers. And I know that the law enforcement departments across our nation are filled with good men 
and filled with good women who who taken an oath and a pledge to serve and protect without partiality and who do so every single day. And for them, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God. Resume the statement. We also lament when some law enforcement officers misuse their authority and bring unnecessary harm on the people they are called to protect. We further grieve with our minority brothers and sisters in the wake of George Floyd's death. Pray for his family and friends and greatly desire to see the misuse of force and any inequitable distributions of justice come to an end. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, the Bible speaks to matters of justice and human dignity. We are taught by scriptures that the scriptures that human beings are distinct from among the rest of creation as those beings which bear the divine image. From the beginning of life to the end, all human beings, both male and female, of all ethnicities, colors, and ages, are sacred beings that God values and loves. Throughout the law, the prophets, the gospels, and the entire canon of Scripture, murder is condemned and God's people are called to protect the vulnerable. The Bible further condemns injustice and the misuse of authority and force. And in the example of Jesus Christ, God's people are called to love others, care for their needs, grieve with them in their brokenness, and labor for the well-being of our neighbor. To follow Christ is to follow in these examples He puts before us. Therefore, as a matter of Christian obedience and devotion, followers of Jesus Christ cannot remain silent when our brothers and sisters, friends, and our people we seek to win for Christ are mistreated, abused, or killed unnecessarily. Therefore, we pray for our local, state, and national leaders as they seek justice and call on them to act quickly and diligently to ensure that these situations are brought to an end. As a people, Southern Baptists stand ready to help towards that end. And may God give us His favor, help, and strength in this effort. I thought it was a well-written statement that covered the holistic nature of the issue. So listen, this morning as we pray as a church, I want us to pray. Pray for the family of George Floyd. Pray for his friends. Pray for those individuals who are experiencing his loss in a different way than we are. Try to enter into their pain with empathy and with compassion and be able to mourn and weep as they mourn and weep. I want you to also pray this morning for our law enforcement officers. Thank God for them and pray for their protection and preservation. I want you to pray as well that God would bring an end in the hearts of those who would seek to abuse this time for their own personal gain by looting and stealing and vandalizing and causing disruption uh, that has no place in a response to what has taken place. Pray that God would cause them to repent and bring them to their knees before Him. And pray for our local, national, and state leaders as they move forward and navigate these waters once again within our nation. And pray for us as Christians that we could truly affirm affirm that all men and women are created equal in the image of God and therefore deserve, deserve rightly to be treated with equity and justice and compassion and kindness. So would you pray with us this morning to that end? I'll give you some space to do so and then I'll close our time together.
Father, our hearts are heavy today for what is taking place in cities across our nation. And Father, while the outrage and the brokenness at one human level is understandable, Father, the response to it has been lunacy. And Father, I pray, I pray, God, for the family of George Floyd. I pray for his friends. Father, I pray that your mercy and grace, that your love and compassion, you would be near to them. Father, I ask that in these days, if they do not know you, Father, that they would look to you for hope. They would look to you for healing. They would look to you to, for help. And Father, I pray for this officer as well, who has lost his job and now faces murder charges. Father, I pray. Father, I, I pray that you would be gracious. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that you love both these men. And so, Father, regardless of what side of this fence we may fall on, or if we can understand what it's like to have a foot in both worlds, Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand that your heart is for every man, every woman, every child who is apart from you, who has sinned against you and sinned against others. That you desire all people everywhere to repent. And Father, I pray that you would bring that about in this case. Give us as your people the capacity to enter into the brokenness of others, even when it's not our own brokenness. And to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. Father, we acknowledge that we don't have that capacity in and of ourselves, but we are entirely dependent upon you for it. Father, I pray for the good men and women of all races and all colors who have taken an oath to serve and protect the citizens of the cities across our nation. I pray for their protection I pray, God, that you'd preserve them. I pray that you would give them wisdom. I pray you'd continue to fill their hearts with compassion. I thank you for those who are a part of our congregation who do not treat others with partiality, but they move towards those who are in need. And they are willing to swiftly execute justice, to uphold the law. I pray, God, that they would know how appreciative we are for them. But in the same breath, I pray that our brothers and sisters of color would know that we stand with them with one voice to condemn the act that took place. So, Father, may the actions of this one man and the others who were surrounding him that day, may they not tarnish and stain the reputation of good men and women who serve and protect every single day. 
Father, I pray that you'd be near to those who are hurting today. And Father, I pray you give us the capacity to enter into that pain with them. I pray you bring an end to the violence. Father, I pray you bring an end to the theft, to the looting. I pray you bring an end to that response. Even while people continue to lift their voices. With the freedom of speech. And freedom to assembly that we enjoy in this nation. Even as they lift their voices peacefully. May you bring an end. May you bring an end to the fires. And to the shattered glass. And to the bloodied faces. Father, as our hearts hurt, may you bring healing even to us and to all those who grieve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know it's a heavy thing to address. And I know there are many who may think, let's just move right on through it. But as a pastor, I want to help us think biblically about everything in life. Again, not just our own personal morality. Right. So this morning, as we regather, I want to break from our series through the Gospel of Mark and preach from Psalm 86. And before we read the text together, I just want to say a public word of appreciation. Uh, two and a half months ago, whenever um, Highview became unavailable to us, um, there were a number of people who stepped up in order to see that you could continue to receive um, music and teaching that would encourage you, hopefully that would edify you, that would build you up and help your faith to persevere in the midst of uh, unprecedented times. But one of those families in particular, Justin and Melinda All, uh, and their hospitality um, allowed us to continue to push out music and teaching over a live stream. Um, and every Sunday they opened the doors of their home. Every Sunday uh, their home was clean uh, and spotless. Uh, Melinda had donuts and cinnamon rolls and welcomed us in every single week. Uh, Justin made something that was rocket science to me look incredibly simple every single week uh, to bring music and teaching out to the families of our congregation to encourage them. And so I hope that you will join with me this morning to thank them for their hospitality thank them for the way that they've served the church in the midst of that season by rejoicing with me. Would you just thank them? It was such a blessing to us, and we've talked on a number of occasions of how um, you know, for such a time as this, the Lord brought them into the life of our church in order to serve so selflessly and with such hospitality. And so I thank God for them and I know you do as well. If you've got a Bible this morning, open to Psalm 86. It's where we're going to be today. Psalm 86, we'll read verses 1 to 17. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. And so I want to encourage you to follow along as we read the text together. If you didn't get one of the sermon notes pages and your kids are looking for those, they're on the back, one of the kiosks in the back of the room. So don't hesitate to step up and go grab one if you need one. It won't bother me at all. Psalm 86, beginning in verse 1. David writes these words, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, 
for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless, ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Now listen, I know over the last two and a half months as we have been isolated in our homes and apart from each other, uh, one of the things the scriptures teach us is that through seasons of trial, through seasons of hardship, through seasons of affliction, pain or distress, oftentimes they function in our lives like a smelter's fire, don't they? They function to burn away some of the dross and bring some stuff to the surface. And so I don't know about you in your life what has been exposed or been brought to the surface over the course of these last couple of months. I do know what I have stared in the face. I do know what has been exposed in my own life and in my own heart. I don't know what's been exposed in yours, but I can imagine if you're anything like me, at least something has come to the surface. Something has been exposed. And so what I want to do this morning as we regather is to come to Psalm 86. And I want us to be reminded of some old truths in a new circumstance. Right? Some old truths in new circumstances. And for some of us, we need to be persuaded of these truths. Because we're not really, maybe even not really sure that we have fully believed them. For some of us, we just need to be reminded of them. And listen, for all of us, we ought to rejoice in them. And so this morning as we come to Psalm 86, listen, I don't know what reality you've been inhaling for the last two and a half months. But the Psalms, you've heard me say it before, the Psalms are beautiful because what they are is the author is inhaling reality and then exhaling theology. So they're taking in what's going on around them or within them and then responding to that with the truth of who God is. And so whatever reality you've been inhaling for the last couple of months, I want us to exhale some theology this morning. Because every day, even apart from a pandemic, we inhale the reality of a fallen world that makes God out to be someone who is very small and someone who is very disconnected from the day-to-day -day realities of our lives. So this morning as we exhale Psalm 86, I want us to get a glimpse or a picture of this big God who is also very present. Right? So he's powerful, 
but present. Now, we don't know exactly the time frame in which David wrote this psalm, but several scholars would suggest on the basis of verse 14, where David writes, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Most scholars suggest on the basis of that particular verse that it was during David's time of running and hiding from Saul as Saul sought his life. As he sent out people to seek David's life. So David has been anointed as king. Saul doesn't like that. Saul seeks him to destroy him, to kill him. And David flees into the wilderness, running from Saul, running from Saul's troops in order to avoid being killed. Now listen, you may not have a man chasing you from city to city and cave to cave. Okay, if you do, right, then you need to get jumped out of whatever gang that you're in. Okay, or right. Like, that's just reality. So you may not have somebody who's chasing you around, but listen, you do have an enemy, church, as do I. And there is an enemy in every single one of our lives who is licking his lips, seeking to devour and destroy us. We're told in the Scriptures, that's the two things Satan aims to do. Through deception, he wants to devour like a lion and steal and destroy our lives. In John chapter 10 and in 1 Peter as well, we're told those. So you have an enemy that's licking his lips to devour your faith through painful times by deceiving you into believing that God doesn't care, that God is distant, that God is far removed, that God has walked away, that He's abandoned you, and that He's nowhere to be found. Your enemy wants you to be deceived into believing those things. And yet this text tells us a different story. And so the first thing that we need to exhale today as we inhale whatever reality we've been experiencing we need to exhale these truths and the first one that we need to exhale is this is that there is none like our God there is none like him listen to what David says in Psalm 86 verses 8 to 10 he says there is none like you among the gods O Lord nor are there any works like yours all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. In these verses, what David does is he acknowledges the absolute uniqueness of God. David says, listen, God has no counterparts and he has no competitors. There is no one who stands toe to toe with him and there is no one who is on an equal plane as him. He's absolutely and infinitely unique. Listen, I want you to think about the most unique thing that you can imagine on the face of the earth. Right? Many, many people say that there's no two fingerprints that are exactly alike. Right? But God is more unique than your fingerprint. Okay? He's more unique than whatever ridges run across the tips of your fingers. There are absolutely amazing rock formations that exist all throughout our world that are one of a kind. You ever seen some of these things, right? These rock formations that rise out of the earth with all the striations and strata that you can see as the bluffs emerge and rise above the land. But listen, no matter how unique those rock formations are, they may be unique among their kind, but there are other rock formations that are made out of the same rock, they're made out of the same substrate, they have the same colorations. They are not one of a kind. There are endangered species that dot the face of the planet, like the Amur leopard, which is the most endangered big cat in the world with less than 30 remaining. Right? So there's all kinds of things that are unique in this world, but there is nothing that is like our God. 
There is none like him. At the beginning of verse 8, David says, There is none like you among the gods. At the end of verse 10, David cries out, You alone are God. God is not only unique among the gods, but there is no other God apart from him. That he stands alone in a category all to himself. And listen to how David describes his uniqueness. In verse 8, David says, there are nor are there any works like yours, which is likely a reference to God's work of creation. Most commentators and scholars believe he's talking about God's work in creation. And if you think about the uniqueness of everything that God has made, it is both immense and intricate. Consider the immensity of God's creation for a moment. Listen, earth, this rock that we call home, orbits the sun, a yellow dwarf star, in a manner that finds itself in the Goldilocks zone. You know what the Goldilocks zone is? It's the place where it's not too cold and it's not too hot. Right? That it occupies this particular region of our solar system where life can exist and where it can be habitable. The sun is at the center of our solar system and its gravitational force holds our planet and the neighboring planets in orbit. Now, listen, our solar system, the Milky Way, uh, the, the Milky Way is part of the Milky Way galaxy, which contains between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. And even if only 0.1% of those stars have solar systems around them, there are between 10 million and 40 million solar systems in our galaxy alone. Our galaxy is estimated on the conservative side to be 100,000 to 120,000 light years across, expansive. There are billions of other galaxies that exist in the vast expanse of space. And when you think about the mind-blowing expansiveness of space that is beyond our planet, when you think about the fact that God conceived of and created all of that, and yet He's contained by none of it. There is none like him. It's an immense works that God has made. But it's also intricate. I want you to consider the composition of the human body for a moment. Right, the cardiovascular system, which pumps blood throughout the body. The digestive system, which allows us to, to, to siphon off nutrients from the foods that we eat. The endocrine system, the immune system, the muscular skeletal system, the nervous system, the respiratory and reproductive systems. Listen, all of the intricate systems that our body has that are fine-tuned for human life, for your heart to pump blood, for your lungs to breathe in oxygen, for your pancreas to, to, to secrete, that's the word I was looking at, secrete insulin, right? To combat the blood sugars in your body, for your liver to filter out the toxins that come through from the iron. Listen, all of the intricacies of the human body. And when you think about the immensity of all that God has made, as you look out at the stars at night, and you think about the intricacy of the human body as you look in the mirror every day, you have to step back. And the only thing that you can say to that is there is none like Him, nor are there any works like yours. It is infinitely and absolutely unique that he's conceived of everything with his mind and spoken everything into existence with his mouth. There is none like him, church. He is high and exalted, majestic and glorious. But I want you to consider something for a moment. That this high, exalted, majestic and glorious God with whom there is none that could compare. Listen. He has chosen to have relationship 
with we, his creatures. And the only way that this God, who is so big, can have a relationship with us who are so small. Do you, do you know you're small? I've, re- I've realized that over the years. I'm pretty small, okay? No matter how tall you may be, you're still small compared to God. That God, who is so big, has relationship with us who are so small. The only way that He can do that is by bending down. Listen to what David says in the psalm. He says in verse uh, 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. See, the first step toward God, the first step toward having a relationship with this God, who is infinitely unique, is to recognize that He must bend down to us. He must lower himself to come and be with us. The word incline in verse 1, it literally means right, to turn toward or to bend. In other words, when David prays, he's asking God to turn his attention downward toward David's position. That God is high and exalted, and if he's to give attention to David and his petition, he must bend down to David's position in order to listen. Now listen, I don't, many of you who are parents probably experienced this with your children as they were young and toddling around and they begin to speak for themselves. Right? Now parents are able to interpret whatever language their children are speaking. Okay? Listen, I was able to interpret my kids just like you were able to interpret your kids. Okay? So I can't interpret your kids. I have no idea what they're saying to me whenever they're like this tall. So I just look to you for the interpretation. Okay? You're their translator. Give it to me. Right, but I can remember as both my kids were learning to talk, right, there would be times that even though I knew the language they were speaking, because I heard it every day in my home, right, right, there were times where they would be loud at the top of their lungs. Particularly one of my children would be loud at the top of their lungs. But then there were other times where they would be almost as silent as a whisper. And there would be occasions in which if I was to make out what they were trying to say to me, that I as a father would have to get down on one knee and bend my ear down to listen very closely and very carefully to what they were saying. And that's the picture that David paints here of a God who is great, big, and grand, who gets down on his knee and he bends his ear down close to hear us when we cry out to him. No matter the reality that you've been breathing in, no matter what's come to the surface in your life, I want you to know this morning, church, that God is infinitely unique. And a part of his uniqueness is that there is no one else who bends their knee down and listens to the petition of their child, no matter how far they've run. No matter what's come to the surface. And no matter what's been exposed. David cries out to God, incline your ear, God, answer me. Answer me. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you see God that way? Is that how you see him? As one that you can ask to bend down to you, turn his ear toward you, and answer you? Do you see God as one whom you can ask to stoop? As one who is wonderfully, as one of the pastors said, attracted to the lowly, to the humble, to the poor, to the needy, to thus have no one else to whom they can turn? Or do you see God as one who is too far off to be bothered by 
your petitions? Do you see God as one who is too far off to come close to you in your rebellion? Do you see God as one who is too far off and too concerned with cosmic affairs to be concerned with your own personal affairs? Like God's too busy keeping the force of gravity intact, right? To listen to you whenever you call out to him or to give you the time of day. How do you see him? No matter what's been exposed over the last couple of months, how do you see this God? Is he one that you see as high and holy, exalted, majestic and glorious, but who would bend down to listen to you as you weep and cry out to him and ask for his intervention in your life and bring your petitions to him? So he must bend down if we're to have a relationship with him. But secondly, if we're to have a relationship with this high God with whom there is none that can compare, not only must he bend down, but we must acknowledge our need and our neediness before him. See, if we're going to ask God to bend down, we must acknowledge that we are beneath him. See, David doesn't say to God, bend down, God, and answer me because I have, listen, God, I have knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I have performed so well, Right? I'm powerful, I'm put together, I know how to win friends and influence people. Right, God, I have my act together. I've sacrificed in all these ways, I've served in all these capacities. That's not what David says. Think about David, the position that he's in, pursued by men who want to kill him. There's a desperation and a confession that he doesn't have the resources to address his condition. Did you, hear, he, he, did you hear that? He doesn't have the resources to make a dent in his position. David essentially says, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless apart from you, God. There's nothing that I can do to give a course correction. So listen, church, do you, how do you see God, but how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as one who's just a little nearsighted, right? You need to go to the eye doctor so they can do that one, two, A, B, C, D type thing. Right? And then give you some contacts or some prescription lenses to correct your vision? Or do you see yourself as one who's born blind and you need someone to give you sight? Do you need just a few tweaks in your life? Or do you need a whole scale renovation of your heart? See, look at the basis for which David asked God to bend down and listen to him and answer. He says, For I, incline your ear to me, God, for I and poor and needy. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about these verses. He said this. He said, doubly, David says, doubly a son of poverty. Because first, poor and without supply for my needs. And next, needy and so full of wants, though unable to supply them. In other words, David is needy twice over. Okay? Because listen, he can't pay his rent. Nor does he have a job to get the money he needs to pay his rent. So he's doubly needy. Twice over. Listen, there is, there is, a, there is a, a, a reason God would cry, a reason David would cry out to God and petition him the way that he does that is rooted in who God is. Right? That he's gracious, that he's merciful, as he recites, and we'll see here in a moment. But there's also a um, condition that David finds himself to be in, which leads him to cry out to God. God is gracious and merciful. I am poor and needy. And listen, what has been exposed in my life through the trial of this pandemic 
is this, that I am my greatest enemy. <laughs> I am, this, this virus is not my greatest enemy. I am my greatest enemy. And so I can relate to what David says here when he says, I am poor and needy. Listen, many of us think if we're going we're gonna to approach God, we're going to come to God, it's, it's kind of like trading baseball cards as a kid. Okay, listen, I, I collected baseball cards as a child. And I, I can remember going to the store every week with my allowance. It was like a block away from my house. So we'd walk down there, we'd buy a pack of baseball cards, we'd open them up, right? And we couldn't wait to see who was in that pack of baseball cards. Or we'd save up and we'd buy the ones in the display case and the little clamshells, right? The little clear cases, because those were worth some money. Right? So we'd save up a little bit and we'd go buy one of those cards. But the way we traded baseball cards as a kid was by the performance of the player. Okay? So the better the player was on the field, the higher dollar amount their card would go for. Right? And so I wouldn't trade away a card from a guy like Tony Gwynn. Some of you are like, who in the world is Tony Gwynn? Like, yeah, like Tony Gwynn, right? Who, who, who was a lifetime, like, career 333 hitter, right? If you don't know anything about baseball, it means he was successful one-third of the time that he came to the plate. That is success in baseball, okay? One-third of the time you get it right, you're successful. But I wouldn't trade away a Tony Gwynn card for some dude who was hitting 182 for his career, right? Because Gwynn's stats were so much higher than this guy who just barely made it off the AAA squad, Right, Because what made those cards valuable was the performance of the person whose image was on it. And so many of us think that God responds to us the same way. That God will incline His ear towards us based on how well we perform. But I want you to know that the, what God delights to bend down and listen to are those who go, you know what? I'm not batting a thousand like one dot zero zero zero. I'm batting dot zero 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 on my own God. I have nothing apart from you. That's the one that God delights to bend down and hear because he's wonderfully attracted to those who are poor and needy. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because this text tells us, this text tells us two things about God's love. And that's what we want to end with today. That I want you to see, I want you to be persuaded of, I want you to be reminded of, and I want you to rejoice in this morning. I want you to see the personal love of God. The personal love of God first. This text tells us in verse 13, listen to what David says, that this God who concerns himself with the forming of planets and peoples and nations is also deeply concerned about persons. Persons, individuals. Listen to what David says in verse 13. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead. Listen, church, if you were to have a confidence to approach God, no matter what's come to the surface in your life, 
Because listen, our tendency is when things rise to the surface and God exposes something in our life is to run away and do like our first parents did. What did they do when it came to the surface in their life in the garden? They covered themselves with fig leaves and they hid in the bushes because they were ashamed. And listen, that is your natural default. You know how I know that? Because that's my natural default. And all of us humans are alike. And so our natural tendency is to withdraw. So how in the world can you have the confidence to come before God and throw yourself upon His mercy and say, God, hear me. Turn your ear towards me. I know that you're powerful. I know that you're majestic. But I need you to show up in my position, in my condition. Because I have nothing apart from you. How can you have the confidence He's going to hear you? The only way you can have confidence that God's going to hear you, no matter what's risen to the surface in your life, is if there is a me and a my right in the center of your understanding of God's love. Listen, David doesn't say, for great is your steadfast love toward us. You have delivered us from the depths of sea. He says, great is your steadfast love toward me, God. You delivered my soul from the place of the dead. God, you've been so, so intimate and personal to me. See, listen, church, it is not enough to know that God loves you abstractly, that God loves people everywhere. It's not enough to know that. It's not enough to know that Jesus died as an expression of God's love. Listen, you must know that He died for you. You must have that reality settle upon your heart. Have a personal experience of the love of God. A taste of it on your tongue. And I want you to know, church, that God is able to do that this morning. No matter what's come to the surface in the last two and a half months. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, I want you to hear this very clearly, that God took a picture, right? A Costco-sized picture of His love, and He poured it into your heart upon your conversion as the Holy Spirit moved in. And the Holy Spirit, one of His jobs in our life is to persuade you that even in the face of your sin, that God loves you. Even in despite of your rebellion, that God loves you. Even in the midst of your temptations, that God loves you. To persuade you of that day after day after day as you experience a taste of it afresh on your tongue and anew. Listen, as my kids were growing up, and even as they are still in our home, I tell them constantly about my love for them. Okay, I tell them daily, daily that I love them. In the evenings before they go to bed, I hug them and say, I love you. Right, because if I die in my sleep, I want the last words they hear from their fathers to be, I love you. But listen, there were occasions as they were growing up. I can remember walking through parks or through stores with them, holding their hands. They're getting to be a point now where they're a little too cool to hold my hand in some occasions. But I remember holding their hands and walking alongside of them, right? And as, or skipping with them, right? As a 
good dad should with his daughter at times. I remember holding her hand, and I can remember at times that we were walking along, there would just be an overwhelming sense of love in my heart as I looked down upon those beautiful blue eyes and that blonde hair and both my kids, and I would just pick them up into my arms. I can't, can't do that with my son anymore, okay? I can barely do that with my daughter, but I picked them up into my arms, and I would look deeply into their eyes, and I would hug them and squeeze them. I'd say, your daddy loves you. And they would look back into my eyes and their eyes would light up and they would get this big smile on their face. And they would, right now they're like, I know, right? But then, at that, when they were that young, they would look back into my eyes and they would just light up their world. Because while they knew all along I was telling them that I loved them, in that moment there was an experience of that love that rushed over their heart that they couldn't contain. So they let out this big smile and they rejoiced and they laughed and they giggled. Listen, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. That word see there, it literally means this. Be astonished. Be flabbergasted. Okay? That's what the Greek means. Be flabbergasted. Right? Be amazed that there's this personal experience of the love of God in your life. Right? If you're a child of God, you've known that experience in your life. As you read the scriptures and you see the affirmations of God's love for you. But there are certain occasions in which those things go radioactive in your life. And you're reminded afresh and anew of God's love. And it moves again into the center of your life. Listen, what will give you the confidence to come to God no matter what has risen to the surface in your life over these last two and a half months is a glimpse of the personal nature of God's love for you. And listen, God is able to do that where you sit right now because of the Holy Spirit. So don't say, well, that's for all the touchy-feely kinds of people out there. That's our tendency, isn't it? That's for all those overly emotional individuals. I'm pretty stoic. Listen, I'm not talking, I, I want to say, I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm saying you can experience this despite the fact that you are type A and rigid. And you never feel anything. Listen, the experience of God's love can move into your heart and explode in your soul in such a way that it causes you to smile as you see it afresh and are amazed by it once again. Only an experience of God's love in your heart will produce this kind of declaration. Incline your ear to me, O God, for I am poor and needy. You are good and gracious. I am absolutely dependent upon you. Now, not only must we see the personal love of God. Listen, church, we've got to also savor the loyal love of God. You know what it means to savor something? You savor a good meal, don't you? Like you push back, like I did last night from Babe's Chicken at the wedding reception for Emily Cooper. I pushed back from the Babe's Chicken. I just savored that experience. 
right? And the mashed potatoes and the corn and the green beans and the roll and the salad and the cake and the Oreo brownies. Man, this is an experience to savor. And it just kind of settles and you delight in it. Listen, that's what I mean when I say savor the loyal love of God. See, some of us think that we cannot call upon God or cry out to Him because we're the foolish ones who've gotten our sorry selves into the mess we find ourselves in in the first place. You ever felt that way before? No, I have. How can I go to God? I, He's not responsible for this. I am. But listen, listen. If you're thinking that right now, if you're thinking, I've got to turn things around, I've got to start living right before I can come to him and have him hear me. Again, I want to remind you, there are certain grounds upon which David petitions God that have to do with David. He is poor and needy, right? But there are certain grounds upon which David petitions God that have to do with God. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. David says that the reason he is petitioning God is because God is good, forgiving, and abounds in steadfast love to everyone. That steadfast that would call upon him. That word steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word chesed. You've got to get that little guttural sound whenever you say it. Chesed. And it literally means the loyal and faithful covenant love of God, which endures. Which endures. It lasts. It is steadfast. David says the loyal and faithful love of God is great. It abounds. It's plentiful and well supplied. It will never run out on you. It will endure through all generations. It will endure through every season of your life. Listen, for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, my wife and I have been going to Broken Bow, Oklahoma, or Beaver's, Beaver's Bend area in Oklahoma. When we first started going up there, um, there's a beautiful spot where the Broken Bow Lake is dammed up and the spillway comes out and flows down into the river that runs called the Lower Mountain Fork River. It's a great trout hatchery and fishery. Okay? And when we first started going there, the river was, was a lot narrower than it is now. Right? There was much more soil and sediment along the bank. Okay? There were bridges that crossed over in certain places over the river. But over the course of the last 15 years, through seasons of torrential rain and floods that have come, and the release from that spillway has let massive rushes of water down that river, which have ultimately begun to wash away all the sediment that was on the banks. And what has been exposed now, the, river's, the river channel is much wider, okay? And the, what's been exposed is all that soil is the substrate that was underneath the rock that was there. See, all that soil was loose and just kind of sitting on top. And so whenever the floodwaters rose and they rushed through that narrow channel, it exposed, it washed away everything that was loose. But everything that was under the surface, the substrate, the rock, it couldn't erode that away. There's still massive boulders in the center of the river that it couldn't push away. Because listen, church, there are some things that just cannot be moved by floodwaters whenever they rise. And the faithful, steadfast love of God is one of those things. That it does not erode on us. It doesn't get washed downstream by the floodwaters in our lives. But it endures 
It is the only thing upon which we can stand. And that faithful love of God, listen, I want you to know that it's demonstrated to us in the New Testament. And one of the places we see it most clearly is in Luke chapter 15. You see it, it like it, because what it looks like is a father who receives and rejoices over his wayward son coming home as he returns. And you know what you see in that text? The father doesn't stay on the porch, does he? As soon as he sees the son in the distance. Saying, incline your ear to me, for I am poor and needy. I have squandered my wealth and wild living. I have been rebellious. You have no idea what's come to the surface in my life over the years since I left home. But the father doesn't look at him and say, well, I'm going to wait till he gets here to see how clean and put together he is. The father drops everything and runs towards him, goes out seeking him. Because that's the kind of love the father has for his child listen church that's the kind of love god has for you let me see if i can illustrate it for you this way as we close this morning because i want you to see it vividly listen there are two movies that remind me of this loyal steadfast faithful love of god very different movies one stars liam neeson it's called taken and the other stars a fish called Finding Nemo, okay? You had no idea that those two movies were so closely related, all right? Because in both movies, what you have is you have a disobedient, rebellious child who goes against the wishes or direct commands of the father and who either swims out and touches the boat, okay? You with me so far? Swims out and touches the boat, that's not what they call it in the movie. I'm not sure if I can say that on stage. But they swims out and touches the boat with a fin. Right? Slaps it. Or in the other movie, you've got this young girl who's going to take a trip with her best friend who lies to her parents about the fact that her friend's parents are going to be there when her friend's parents were not there. And she ends up getting kidnapped in this Paris apartment, right? Because her friend's parents are not there. Somebody breaks in takes them, abducts them, to sell them into the human trafficking industry. In Nemo, right, back to the cartoon. In Nemo, Nemo touches the boat and is scooped up by the diver and is taken away and confined in the tank. But listen, in Taken, you've got a man with a very particular set of skills, right, who will move heaven and earth to rescue his daughter. And so... It's a pretty violent film after that, right? There's a lot of people that he beats up, right? In order, he walks in, right, to the, the boat where his daughter's being held. After he finally finds her, right, he lays down the couple of guys who were guarding her, and he looks at her in the eye, and he doesn't say, I told you so. What does he do? He opens his arms, and he embraces her. Or in Nemo. Right? When the dad finally gets to the pipeline and Nemo comes out of the drain, he's overjoyed at this reunion with his son. And his first words are not, I told you so. Listen, church, in both of these movies, the father risks his life to go after his wandering, rebellious child. But I want you to know something. That in reality, God, our Father, 
not only risked the life of his one and only son, but gives the life of his one and only son. Because he did not sit back and say, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. But the ultimate expression of God's loyal, steadfast love that would never erode or run out is the fact that in Philippians chapter 2, you see Jesus who, though being equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather clothed himself in human likeness, took on our nature. And what did he do with that nature? He came to save, seek, and rescue we who were rebellious and wayward children. Don't you see? Isn't that something to savor? Isn't that something to put before your eyes every single day as you wake up and rejoice over the fact that God didn't say, stand, that God didn't stand on the porch and wait for you to come back so he could say, I told you so. But God clothed himself in flesh and came running after us to rescue us in our foolishness, in our sin and our rebellion. So listen, no matter what came to the surface in your life over the last two and a half months, I want to stand before you and say that you, God's not waiting for you to get clean before you come to him this morning. But that all you have to do you say, incline your ear, bend down and hear my petition, God, because I am poor and needy. I don't have the resources to get out of this predicament myself. I need you. And God is wonderfully attracted to the lowly. No matter where you are. Because his love is not just for everyone else but it's for you personally. And that love will never run out. That's good news, isn't it? So I hope those are some old truths that you're able to embrace in some new circumstances and be persuaded of, reminded of, and rejoice in. Let's pray together. Father, this morning... Thank you for your love. We thank you that you are good and gracious. You're merciful and that you abound in it. It's overflowing with you. And Father, no matter where my brothers and sisters are today, those who are in the room with us and those who are still in their living rooms, no matter what's come to the surface in their marriage, no matter what's come to the surface in the relationship they have with their children, no matter what's come to the surface, in their relationship with you, whatever this trial, whatever you've used this trial to try to burn out of them, Father, may they know that your love never runs out. That as the old song says, the love of God greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned 
from his sin. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure as the saints and angels song. So this morning, could we with pen, with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, and every stone on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. And would the scroll contain the whole? It could not, though stretched from sky to sky. May you persuade us of that. May you remind us of that. And may we rejoice in that. No matter the trial, and no matter what it's brought to the surface. We pray it in Jesus' name.